Makes you want to wander off someplace quiet to pray, doesn't it? Well, wake up. Because we're going to get into a great text this morning as we return to Luke chapter 8 and the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower or the parable of the hearts, however you want to look at it. Have you ever wondered why some people just can't seem to understand Christianity? Why some people, they, you know, they hear the gospel, they've had the gospel explained to them many times, but the whole idea that God became a man and lived a perfect life and, you know, did miracles and, you know, died on the cross and rose again in the third day, they just look at you like, I can't believe you are so naive to believe such a fairy tale. Have you ever wondered why there can be unbelieving Bible scholars? Now, is that ever an oxymoron or what? An unbelieving Bible scholar. Well, I don't go to church and I study the Bible, though, for a living. That is my profession. That I don't believe in God. That is so strange. And what about the people who hear the gospel but reject it time and time again? Or the people who, who grow up in a Christian family and seem to be doing great and, you know, and then as soon as they get a chance to leave home, they just leave the Lord as they leave home. What, what is that? What is, what's happening there? Or what about the person who seems to come to salvation? They get involved in church. They seem excited for a while, really excited. And they're, oh, everything's so new and everything's so wonderful. Then all of a sudden, some girl comes along, some guy comes along, some high-paying job comes along, and they just say, oh, it was fun trying out Jesus, and they just walk away. And that's it. You know, people like this are like the free, the cars on the freeway in number. They're, They're everywhere. All of us know or have known people like this. They're everywhere. And every believer asks the question, why? Why does this happen? And the parable of the sower answers that question. That is its primary purpose. Jesus has been traveling around the country with a group of followers. There's some men, some women, the 12 And these people all believe in him. They are kind of his little entourage. They're traveling around and Jesus is preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel. But what's happening is, is those who believe are watching multitudes reject him. And Jesus knows what's going on in their heart. Why? Why? To them it seems so clear, so plain, so obvious. Jesus is the Messiah. He's doing miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing all manner of disease and sickness and casting out demons and hello, he's the Messiah. And yet these people are unmoved. They come, they watch the miracles. They're very fascinated, maybe eat some miraculous fish or loaves of bread and then go home. And Jesus knows that there is a frustration in the heart of every believer that asks, why, why does this happen? And so that is why he gives the parable of the soils. We come to verse 4 where we have the situation that led to Jesus giving the parable. Then in verses 5 to 8, Jesus gives the parable itself. 
In verses 9 and 10, Jesus explains why he teaches in parables. And then finally, in verses 11 through 15, he interprets and explains the parable's spiritual meaning. Now, because the text is long, we are not going to read it and then go through it, but we'll just read it as we go. But this parable, you should learn from this parable, you should learn three reasons why, or the reasons why some people permanently, permanently receive the gospel and then persevere to maintain fruit and others don't. That's the whole point of this parable. And we're going to learn some other good things along the way, but that is the big bite, the big idea. But first let's talk about the situation that led to Jesus giving the parable. Look at verse four. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. Now, what you need to remember is up to this point, Jesus hasn't really taught a lot in parable. There's just been a couple little ones, but he hasn't been teaching. But as people are rejecting him more and more, as the gospel is being um, rejected and his message and his teaching and his miracles are being rejected more and more by the multitudes, he then begins to teach more and more of parables. As a matter of fact, Mark really emphasizes this and says things like, and he never taught to them at all except by parables after a certain point. It just was over. Listen, if you are a hard-hearted unbeliever, you only get parables. And so he began to change and switch his teaching from very straightforward, clear teaching to parables. And in verse 4, it says, when this large crowd was coming together and they were gathering because they had heard about his miracles and his teaching and all. And so there's a bunch of fascinated people coming to him and his little entourage of believers that were with him. They all come. And this is the situation that led to Jesus giving the parable. And so this is what you need to keep in mind. He is preaching the gospel. Some people are accepting him, but most are rejecting him. And so Jesus, knowing he is going to send his disciples out, knowing how exasperating it is when people reject the message, he wants to equip them. He wants to equip them so that they know how to respond and how to reason through and how to answer the question of why do some people respond to God's word and other people do not? Now, before we look at the parable itself, we need to talk a little bit about agriculture in those days, and then it will make the parable uh, much easier to understand. In those days, a farmer would have a, a field, and he would plow the field at the right time of year. Um, he would uh, you know, get an ox or two oxen and, and pull a plow, which was like a big pointy you know, thing that just stuck in the ground. It wasn't all that complex with wide handles, and they'd just pull along and just kind of just turn over the soil and he would go over probably the field a couple times just to break up the soil into chunks and maybe drag it with uh, another skid in order to kind of break up some of those big chunks and so the the soil would become uh, you know friable and loose and with you know clods and cracks if he encountered a rock, he would take the rock and, and throw it either on the outside of the field along the perimeter or in piles. And if you go to places where they have rocks in the soil and farming, you will still see this today. You'll be seeing a field and in the field there'll be these piles where they throw the rocks that seem to perpetually rise up to the surface. And then the 
farmer would wait because at that time in that culture and place, um, uh, that geographic location, uh, the rains would come in, in very regular cycles. There would be the former and latter day rains and they knew almost within weeks when they would come and say, well, they get out there and they would sow the seed. The seed would uh, be, you know, put in a sack and they just walk around and throw it around. It wasn't real scientific. You just cast it around the field. It wasn't nice, neat rows like we have it in fields today. And, and in the process of throwing the field, some would fall on the pathway or the road, the real hard pan that, you know, they drive their carts on or walk on. Others would fall among those rocks they had stacked up um, to clear the field of rocks. And others would be, would fall among weedy places, maybe places that were never plowed. And over the years, it just kind of weeds growing in the corners or perimeters also. And so the seed would fall in those places. Most of it though would fall on the good soil. And then when the rain would come, it would sprout and, and bring forth a crop so that's just basically how it is it could have been that somebody was sowing seed or plowing a field um, right as jesus was teaching this very likely the people were all gathered thousands of people are gathered and you know here's some guy on the 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 hillside and jesus says a sower went out to sow and everybody goes yeah we know about that and this is what he said luke chapter 8 verse 5 the sower went out to sow his seed And as he sowed, some fell beside the road. It was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And he said the, and as he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now we're going to look at the interpretation of the parable in a minute, but let me just point out a few things here. Notice Jesus mentions four kinds of soil. Three of the soils actually germinate some seed, but only one of the soils out of the four produces a crop. And it's a huge crop, a hundred times more than what was sown. And finally, Jesus calls out for those who have ears to hear. He says, I want you to hear. Well, that is an interesting statement. We'll talk about that too. But keep in mind that Jesus is not giving a lecture here on the fundamentals of agriculture. He is teaching a spiritual lesson. He wants us to understand spiritual truths. And so he is teaching a spiritual lesson to those who have ears to hear. A certain subgroup of this huge multitude that is out there. Now, you may be asking yourself, why would Jesus teach in parables in the first place? I mean, when you think about it, that's kind of a cryptic way to communicate. You can just imagine after the service today, I'm standing in the foyer or up here in front. You come up to me, ask me a Bible question, and I give you a parable. (laughs) And you go, well, what's that supposed to mean? Well, the whole point is parables obscure the truth. They're riddles. They're hard to understand. And so the disciples thinking, okay, you've been going around, you've been preaching the gospel to all these cities, you've been doing miracles, and now you teach a parable. Why are you doing this? And they have the same question we have. And so this brings us to our first point. You can't understand God's word apart from God's grace. Look at verse 9. His disciples began questioning him as to what the parable meant. 
which is, should make us feel good as we look at parables and go, what does that mean? They understood the literal meaning. That was not a problem. But they're thinking, okay, well, who's the sower? Who is the seed? You know, what does these different soils mean? I mean, what is he trying to talk about? And look at verse 10. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now just stop there. This verse is loaded. As a matter of fact, I almost, I was tempted, I wavered to doing a whole sermon on verse 10. Um, but we're going to do it in short order because we're going to encounter more of this. But he says to the disciples, now notice the disciples question him. And so he's speaking to the disciples and says to you, to you believers, to you who believe in me, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The word granted means to give to a special blessing, to grant somebody or bestow on somebody or to hand to somebody some sort of gift or blessing or special thing. And in this case, it is to know, not intellectually, there is a word that talks about kind of logical knowledge. This is a more than just um, mental knowledge. This is to intimately know something. As a matter of fact, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used of a husband and a wife having intimate knowledge of each other. It is a knowledge that is both experiential, relational, and very intimate That's what he's talking about. To you, a blessing has been given to you that you might experientially, intimately know what? The mysteries of the kingdom of God. And the word mysteries is another key word. It is a word that describes those mysteries, those truths which cannot be understood apart from God's intervention, apart from his grace. You remember Daniel when uh, in the book of Daniel and Daniel chapter two, if you don't know this come Sunday night, man, you're, we're, we're going getting there. But in Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this statue, you know, with the head of gold and the arms and, you know, chest of silver and then belly and thighs of bronze and on down. And he has this, this vision and it's a mystery to him. And in the LXX, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it uses the same word mystery over and over again. And of course, Daniel then is called forth. He receives the information from God about the mystery and its meaning, and then he reveals it to the king. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying to you, my believers, to you disciples, it has been by divine favor granted to you to have an intimate and experiential knowledge with the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, not everyone receives this, but those who have ears to hear, spiritual ears Jesus wasn't saying those of you who haven't had your ears cut off or hacked out. He's saying, no, those of you who have ears, that is the spiritual understanding to know what I am saying, let him hear. Notice that Jesus didn't call everyone aside and explain the parable to them. It was the disciples. The rest are out there. I wonder what that was about. Yeah, well, of course we know that sowers go out and sow and seed falls in different places and some of it bears for fruit and some doesn't. So what? And they're all out there going, did we come out here to hear this? 
They, they don't know. Other people are going, oh, wonderful. And they're looking at their, what's wrong with you? But Jesus says in the middle of verse 10, but to the rest, it is in parables. In other words, I'm going to explain the spiritual significance of my word to those whom it has been granted and to those that it has not been granted. It's going to remain a mystery. They will not have that intimate experiential knowledge of my word. Now, I don't know about you, but does that seem strange to you? Does that seem strange to you that Jesus who came to be a light in the world would hide his light from people? That seems strange to me. Why would God do this? It just doesn't seem fair that God would reveal his truth to some, but not others. And that's what a lot of people ask. That that, that, that doesn't seem fair. Well, you know what? It's not. But whenever you ask for fairness, do you know what you're asking for? Justice. Justice is fair. And believe me, you do not want to be asking God for justice. When you're a sinner, you don't want justice. What you want is mercy and grace. And mercy and grace are both unearned and undeserved. That is, you can demand justice from God and you will receive it. But you cannot demand that which you do not deserve, right? And when God gives people the understanding of his word and grants them the ability to know the mysteries of his kingdom, that is an act of his grace. That is not something we deserve. We do not deserve it. You know, I know other people are not greater sinners than myself. There's people who are far smarter than me. People who have greater gifts and greater talents and greater speaking abilities. There are people with greater fame and greater fortune. The question is, why me? Why you? There's a lot of people out there who don't know Christ, who don't know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So why would God grant it to you? Here's the answer. The Bible doesn't say. It just says it's true. Knowing and experiencing God's word is reserved for those who have been saved or those who are being drawn by God's grace to repentance and faith in Christ. The rest, get it in parables. That is why when you share the gospel with some people, they look at you like, this is a joke. And other people break down, cry and give their life to Christ and walk with the Lord until they die. Notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 10. He quotes a portion of Isaiah 6. He quotes verse 9, but he leaves out verse 10. And he says, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. But Mark and Luke both include the rest of Isaiah's statement. Where... The text reads, render the hearts of this people insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Mark translates healed forgiven. Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah says, I want you 
to hide my truth from these people so they will not be forgiven and saved. Now that is a mystery to some people who want fair and who don't understand what fair is. Why doesn't God allow his truth to be known to everyone? Here is the answer. Judgment. Judgment. God judges people by not granting them the ability to know his truth. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. This is a prayer that Jesus uttered. And as I read this prayer, I want to encourage you to ask yourself if you have ever prayed anything like this before. When I was reading this, I was thinking, I've never prayed anything like this before. See if you have. Verse 25 of Matthew 11. At that, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Have you ever prayed that? I just praise you, God, that you've kept the truth from those people. I've never, I've never prayed that. And Jesus praised God for that truth. Turn over to, turn over to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 is, it's a little verse there, verse 14 in Acts chapter 16. Paul has set out to see from Troas according to verse 11. And then uh, went to a place he can't pronounce. Then to Neapolis. There to Philippi. And then the district of Macedonia. To a Roman colony. He stays there. He preaches there. Verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple fabrics. A worshiper of God was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You see that Paul was preaching the gospel. And here is one of the clear verses that say what happens when someone gives their life to Christ. God reaches into their life through the Holy Spirit and he opens their heart so that they can understand the things spoken. Paul talks about this in great detail in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 15. We don't have time to go through the text. But in verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. This teaches that the Holy Spirit is behind all of this. We have received the Holy Spirit so that we can know the things given to us by God. That is, know his word. In verse 14, he says, But the natural man, the unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. He cannot understand them. This is the doctrine of illumination. 
The doctrine that God, by his spirit, through his grace, grants to his elect the ability to understand his word. No matter how well you preach the gospel, no matter how slick you are at sharing with somebody, or how good you are at arguing, or how excellent you are at oratory or persuasive arguments, I am telling you this, you cannot grant people illumination. Ever. Ever. It's nothing you can ever do. It is only something God does. Only something that he does on his own accord, by his own will, according to his grace and mercy. Why do I tell you this? Because it should help you relax a little bit. When you're sharing the gospel with somebody, don't get, don't fret and worry. Oh, they didn't come to the Lord. Maybe I should have given them another verse. Listen, you will never be able to save anybody. You will never be able to grant anybody illumination. That is a work of God and God alone. It is your job to share the truth. It's God's job to make it living and active in people's hearts and bring them to salvation through it. It should also remind you to pray. Pray hard that God would grant understanding to people. Now when you share the gospel, you should be praying that while you're sharing it, Lord, help them understand this. Open their hearts. Give them illumination. Make your spirit move within them. And finally, it should make you praise God if you know Christ. Because you are one of the choice, select, few. That God, by his grace, has granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot of guys out there and gals who are Hebrew and Greek experts. And, oh, they they spend their whole life studying the Bible. But I'm telling you, if you came to Christ yesterday, you know more in this manner than the greatest unbelieving Bible scholar in the world. They have never experienced the truth. They don't have the intimate knowledge of the truth. Some people don't understand, you know, when, 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 when you're studying your Bible during the week or having a quiet time or something, you, you find this passage. And say, this is so cool. This is so cool. Look at this. Look at this right there. And they're looking at you like, well, what's wrong with you? You ever experienced that? This is the common occurrence of new believers. You know, all they know is they were blind and now they can see. And so they go home to their unbelieving family and go, Mom, Dad, look at this. Let me read it to you. And they read it and their family goes, so? And their family is just totally unmoved. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Oh, look, at oh, right here in Philippians or right here in Romans or I read this. And oh, isn't this wonderful? See, that is God's spirit working in their heart there and now for the first time having that experiential knowledge of the truth. The, the word is working on them. They know it. They're intimate with it. Unbelievers never have that at all. And so this is what The scriptures teach God by his Holy Spirit invades a person's life and opens up the word. And wow, it just hits you. It hits you. And I'm telling you, every believer knows this. And if you don't know this, it's because you don't know Christ. Because this is what happens. 
God grants this to his saints. And so you should praise God for that. Secondly, you need to ask yourself this. Is your heart like the hard pan of the road? Look at verse 11. After Jesus explains that understanding his word is a gift of God, not a work of man. He says in verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. Now immediately we realize that Jesus is talking about preaching the word. As a matter of fact, Matthew includes in verse 37 of chapter 13 that the sower is the son of man. But the principle, Luke leaves that out because the principle is anybody who shares God's word is sowing the seeds of God's word. Jesus, of course, explaining his ministry to disciples calls himself the sower. But it is anyone who proclaims God's word. Look at verse 12. Jesus begins by explaining the seed sown by the road or sown on the road. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Now, just remember, Jesus is going to use this phrase in every time. All these different kinds of soil hear the word with their physical ears. But there are only some who have ears to hear, though they all hear some select group who have been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, they can hear with spiritual understanding. But what happens to the word of God when it is sown in a heart that is hard as a road? Look at the middle of verse 12. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. Now notice that Jesus is talking about hearts here. He's not talking about soil. He's talking about hearts. Hearts that have the word of God shared with them. Your mind, your heart, your soul. And he says, when you have a hard heart, the birds pick it up. The birds represent Satan who snatches away the word of God from a hard heart. And Jesus doesn't explain how Satan does this. He just says that he does do it. And why does Satan do that? I mean, why doesn't he just leave it there on that hard heart? Well, Look at the last part of verse 10. So that they will not believe and be saved. No one gets saved apart from the word of God. No one ever. You know, there is some bad teaching out there today that says, you know, you can just have good intentions. You can be saved and be saved. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, you can be sincere in your you know, worship of bugs and be saved. No, you can't. Paul in Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or whether you're Greek. If you're going to believe, it's because of the gospel. It is the and the only power of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. James in James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He brought us forth by the word of truth. He caused us to be born again by the word of truth. 
I think Peter probably was thinking of the parable of the soils when he wrote this in 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. That is the only way anybody ever gets saved. It's through the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Through people reading it, hearing it, watching it lived out, the gospel is the only way. It is the only power. Years back, Lisa and I were were, uh, trying to witness to this guy who was just a bachelor and we had had him over multiple times. And, and so, you know, we're, we're, you know, we talked to them a little about the Lord. I mean, he knew I was a pastor. And so, you know, I mean, it was pretty obvious I was religious. But we had dinner and we're talking with him, asking about his life. And, and then he just says, so tell me, what does it mean to be born again? Oh, I love that. I mean, if you could see my carotid artery, my, it was throbbing. I was trying to maintain my cool and not just jump down his throat. Well, let me tell you. It was, I was shocking. You know, usually it's like, well, you know, do you go to church? And, you know, if you die, do you go? You kind of have to pry people and, you know, wrench them to the place where they even want to listen to the gospel. And this guy just say, what does it mean to be born again? And so Lisa and I are like, we want to tell you. And so we did for about an hour and a half. We told him everything. We gave him a whole class in soteriology. I mean, we just dumped on him. And you know what? He was interested. He asked a few more questions. And after we were done, it was, it was apparent that he just, that was interesting. So a few weeks later, I went over there to help him. He was remodeling his house. I went over there to help him work in his house. And we're, we're working. And he stops right in the middle of this project. And he says, so Jack, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? And I thought, I was thinking to myself, I just told you. I, were you there in our house? That was you on the couch, wasn't it? That wasn't your twin. And you know what? It became obvious as I started talking to him. It, he had no recollection of that. It was, I said, like his mind was erased. I mean, you know, I said, do you remember when, when you were over at our house? Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about the couch, on the couch about what it meant to be born again. He kind of just got this. Tell me again. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And what you need to ask yourself, do you have a hard heart? Is your heart like the hard pan of the road? Maybe you came, come to church out of habit because, you know, you did growing up or, you know, you have some guilt and you come to church thinking, well, you know, maybe this will kind of make God, you know, relieve my guilt or whatever. I'll sing a few songs, throw some bucks on the plate, get convicted by the sermon. But your heart is as hard as granite. And you have determined not to be moved. You know what sins are in your life. And before you even pull in the parking lot, you have made up your mind. You're not giving this area of your life over to God. Oh, he can have a little bit of your time. You'll sing some hymns. You'll give a little bit of money. But you're not going to let him rule your life. 
And so, though the word of God may convict you a bit, it just lays on the surface of your heart. Well, I'm telling you, if that's you, by the time you drive out of the parking lot, the birds come. They're snatching it away. I don't care if we sowed a whole sack of seed in your heart. It gets all gobbled up. The pigeons of hell come swoop down, pick it all up, and there's nothing there. Who is God to think he can control every area of my life? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I haven't murdered anybody. I've been a pretty good person. I, you know, I'm going to church. I'm, you know, doing a lot of things right. But yeah, he can't have everything. And who do you think he is? God? (laughs) Yeah, he knows he is. But you don't. You think you're God. That's your problem. And if that's you, I warn you that you are in very grave danger. Very grave danger. Because when you come to church and hear the word of God preached and sing praises, you're being told truth. Seed is being sown in your heart right now as I speak. And every time you reject, your heart gets harder and pretty soon it becomes like polished granite. There's no chance that seed's going to get in there. Unless God brings in the jackhammer, and by his grace, he does. There have been many people who have been ground into dust so that the seed could be sown, and it's painful. But what you need to do, if that's you, is you need to repent. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to confess your sin. You need to give your all to Jesus. Give everything to Christ. Turn from all of your sin and receive him as the Lord and master of your life to follow him from now on into all eternity. Take up your cross, die to self and follow Jesus. Third, is your heart like rocky soil? Look at verse 13. Jesus explains those in the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. There's a certain kind of religious person who's very excited, very emotional, Very thrilled about Christianity for a time. Maybe they grew up in a pagan home and they didn't know anything about Christianity. They'd heard about it. They know there's churches out there, but they've never really had a Christian talk to them and never really been to church. Maybe some hard times have come into their life and they thought, you know, I'm going to run to church and get some comfort. You know, church is kind of like a social action group. And you just go there and people are nice and are kind of moral. And some people come into the church and they're thrilled. They are thrilled. Nobody's smoking in the foyer or drinking or cussing. They all, they're nice to you. They want to be your friend. They hear encouraging truths from God's word. And man, it's, it's great. It's thrilling. And they have this very emotional, joyous response. And you know what? These are the kind that deceive us the most. Because we think, oh man, that person has come to Christ and they've come to Christ hard. Look how excited they are, man. They're involved in everything. But listen, never confuse salvation with excitement. Some people get excited for a time. It's fruit that you need to look for. Persevering fruit. Look at the middle of verse 13. And these have no firm root. You know, plants need roots, don't they? They need them. 
I mean, try this, you know, next Christmas, go to that Christmas tree lot, pay too much. You know, I grew up, I just, I was on the board of the forest service. I just hiked up with my snowshoes, caught one down and drug it home. And now every time I go there and they, you know, they want a hundred bucks for a dead tree. You have to go through this big mental thing. Oh, dad, it's Christmas time. I just want to just get that Christmas tree and plant it in your yard. And just watch it grow. And you know what? For a while, it looks like it's alive. It looks like it's going to make it. And then all of a sudden, it starts getting lighter green and brown. The needles fall off and it's dead. It has no root. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 13. They believe for a while and in a time of temptation, they fall away. This is not saving faith. They believe like demons believe. They believe like Judas believe. They believe like those disciples who were thrilled at Jesus' miracles. But as soon as he made some hard calls in their life, they quit following him. These are people who believe with their mind only. Oh yeah, they intellectually agree that these things are true. They may be very passionate about them for a time. They're thrilled to learn some new things about Christianity. But eventually when temptation comes, their favorite sin comes calling and they have to choose between Christ and their life of sin. They turn like a dog to its vomit or a sow after a washing to returns to wallow in the mire. They tried out Christianity for a time. Yeah, have you ever talked to anybody like that? Yeah, I tried out Christianity. What? No, you didn't. You can't try out Christianity. You either become Christianity or not. Now, you may have tried out going to a building where the church meets, but you haven't tried being a Christian. And when their old sins come knocking at the door, their true allegiance is revealed and they fall away. The Greek word is a fistemi. It's the negative of fistemi, which means to stand firm or hold firm. A fistemi is the negative of that. It means to not stand firm, to not hold firm, to fall away, to apostatize, to become faithless, to reject what you once appeared to stand for. They go apostate. They walk away from Christ. Oh, maybe not with their words, but with their life, with their heart. And you know what? I feel for parents because of this very thing. There are so many parents I talk to who had a child who used to follow the Lord. At one time, they made a profession. Well, they grew up in the church. Well, of course, because their parents were in the church. Yeah, they came to church every Sunday. Yeah, of course, because their parents made them. They went to youth group. Yeah, because their parents made them. But as soon as they get out of the house, they get out of Christ. They run away. And, you know, you hear him saying, thing, oh, yes, my son is saved. I know he's been living in immorality for 10 years. <laughs> but he loves the Lord. Not. <laughs> Not. My daughter is saved. Now, she doesn't go to church. She doesn't read her Bible. And yes, she's involved in a lot of wicked activities. But, you know, when she was little, oh, oh you should just hear her pray. No. No. Parents do not like to think of the, their children being children of Satan on their way to hell. 
Parents cannot endure the thought that their child is on their way to hell. So they lie to themselves. Frequently they do this. They lie to themselves to comfort their own heart. Parents, listen to me. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, he who loves me keeps my commandments. Paul said, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Don't lie to yourself anymore. Those who hate God, hate God. And that's how it is. So instead of encouraging them, oh, I know you're saved, but you're just, you know, have fallen away for this brief 12-year period. Just tell yourself the truth. These people don't love the Lord. Yes, they're the seed sown among the rocky soil. There is only one thing worse than being an unbeliever, hard pan person. And that is having come into the church, having received God's truth, having spent time fellowshipping with believers and then rejected. That is worse. And so you need to tell them the truth. Listen, I know you think you're a Christian, but you're not because the word of God says you're not. I know you think that your life growing up in the church is going to get you into heaven. It's not. You're on your way to hell. You need to repent. You need to believe. You need to give your life to Christ. Tell them the truth. Peter in 2 Peter 2, 20 and 21 says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. There's only one thing worse than being an unbeliever, and that's being an unbeliever who has been exposed to the truth and the fellowship of the saints. And those people don't need encouraged that they're still saved. They need evangelized. They need evangelized. John in his first epistle warns by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And he's not talking about sinless perfection. That's not what we're talking about. No one is sinless. He's talking about those who know Christ are progressing Towards Christ's likeness. Oh yeah, they fall. Oh yeah, we have periods of ups and downs where we're doing better or not doing so good. But over the course of our life, God, who promised to perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus, is doing that. And if he wasn't, he'd be a liar. And he can't be a liar. And so if that's not happening in someone's life, it's because they don't know the Lord. And so when you get to a person like that, don't say, well, you know, I know you're saved, honey. But you need to return to the Lord. No, you need to turn to the Lord for the first time. You need to experience the life-changing truth of God's word and be saved. So keep witnessing to them. Keep praying for them. Don't give up. But if they're living for self and Satan, they aren't living for God. They aren't God's. Four. Is your heart like weed infested soil? Look at verse 14. Jesus says the seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. 
Along the edge of the field, the farmer might accidentally throw some seed in areas he didn't plow, areas that the weeds grew up in and have kind of taken over and they've sprouted their own seeds and all that seed has fallen on the ground. It's just waiting for the same rain that the good seed is waiting for. The difference is, is weeds are native to the soil. And man, they are vigorous. It's their perfect environment. And so here's Mr. Poor Little Wheat Grain, surrounded by the thistles and the malva weed and the spurge and whatever it is, just all crowded around it. And as soon as the rain comes, those things jet out of the ground. They're taller, they're stronger, they're faster growing. And yeah, the, the wheat starts to sprout and get some, just, it's just choked out. Never produces, never even begins to produce a crop. It looks like some people's gardens. The weeds in this parable represent sin, which Jesus defines in three ways. The first, he says, is worries. Worries. And you know what? This is a word that might be translated fretting. Or being fearful. Or being anxious, or in the common modern day vernacular, stressing out. People come out, oh, I'm so stressed. I feel like say, oh, so you're in so much rebellion against God. Stressing out is sin. Anxiety is sin. Fearfulness is sin. Worry is sin. And there are some people who are worried about everything. They're like Martha, worried, worried, worried. I'm worried about my car. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my relationships. I'm worried about my plasma TV or the one I wish I had that I don't have. I'm worried. And you know what? That kind of life chokes out the word. Because God gives you all these promises. I will never leave you. I will take care of you. My grace is sufficient for you. I am sovereign. But when you worry and you fret and you're anxious, what you're doing is you're denying that. You're denying God's promises. You're denying his sovereignty. You're denying that he's in control. You're denying that his grace is sufficient for you and that he is in total control of everything that's happened to you and that he knows exactly what's going on and he's going to use this for your good. You're denying it all. And it chokes it out. If you want to do a good study, do a study on Psalm 37. The whole psalm is about this. Psalm 37, 8 says, Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. That's the only thing it leads to, evil doing. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus talking to the multitude there says, Listen, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. Your father knows what you need. He says, look at the grass out there. Is it doing okay? Sure, it's doing okay. And you know what? We're going to cut that grass down and throw it on the fire. Look at the birds. Are they fretting? No, because God, he takes care of the grass. God takes care of the birds. Aren't you worth way more than birds and grass? And the answer is, of course you are. So he says, don't be worried about your life or what you're going to eat and your drink and your clothing. He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Paul in Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And he goes on to say, and God's peace will come over you. Don't fret, don't worry, don't be anxious. But there's a certain kind of person. You sow these promises of God in their heart and these great truths in their heart. And you know what? 
they're anxious, they're worried, and they leave. And pretty soon they're so consumed with all these things they don't have control over that all those things just overwhelm the word and choke it out. And they can't even remember the promises anymore. The second kind of weed is riches. The worries of the world and riches. The pursuit of riches, the love of riches. This is the golden weights that have sunk in many people to hell. I'm going after the God of gold. Riches. More money. I need to make more money so when I die, I can leave more behind. <laughs> Paul speaking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many impaying or many griefs. That is, they've impaled themselves. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Some, by longing for money, have wandered away from the faith. That is, they've come in contact with Christians. They're starting to be exposed to Christianity. And then, hey, money. The job, the opportunity lures them away. They turn their back on God because of their greed. Third kind of weed Jesus mentions are the pleasures of this life. You know, there's there's a lot of ideas out there in the world and even among Christians that that being a Christian is just just nothing but pleasures. And you know what? There are a lot of pleasures associated with being a Christian. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Not if you're an unbeliever, he doesn't. He has a bad plan. But even if you are a believer, We need to keep in mind that at times you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be rejected, you're going to be ignored, you're going to be passed over for that job or made fun of or slandered. There are some in learning about Christianity, they, they, they just mock you. Paul told the believers in Acts 14, 21, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound fun? Timothy told Titus, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does that sound fun? Philippians 1.29 says, For to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. That is Christianity. And some people, they just don't want it. They, they don't want, they don't want the persecution. They don't mind salvation. They don't mind the hymns. They don't mind the encouraging part. But when it comes for standing up for Christ in the world and receiving licks because of it, that they, that's it. That's it for them. I'm leaving. <laughs> you know, Christianity thing's okay for some, but I'm not going to be a martyr for Jesus. Fifth, is your heart like good soil? This is the encouraging part. Finally, we got some soil here that's going to produce a crop. Verse 15, but the seeds sown in good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Here we have a heart that has been plowed up by God's grace and the rocks have been removed by the rake of God's mercy. It's been fertilized by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And when the seed sown in a heart like that is watered with honesty And heated with the sunshine of goodness, it sprouts, its roots go deep, it grows up strong and produces a crop. It holds fast the word. 
Now, all the other examples don't. In one example, the birds pick it away. The other, it dries up. The other, it's choked out. This is the only case where the word is held fast and the only case where there is fruit. Fruit born in perseverance, Jesus says. Now, there's some who say, well, you know, you don't have to produce fruit to be a Christian. Oh, really? So, yeah, if you say that, you're adding works to the gospel. No, you're not. You aren't adding works to the gospel if you're talking about what happens after someone's saved. We aren't saying that good works earn you the right to be saved. What we're saying is when you are saved, you will produce good works. The scriptures are clear about this. I think there is a real fear of some people because they have sons and daughters and loved ones that they don't want to think are going to hell because they made a profession of faith for Christ at one time and now they're living for sin and Satan and they want to believe that those people are saved and that they believe that they had to produce fruit that they wouldn't be saved. That's right. The question is, what do the scriptures teach? Well, look back at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. To see what the word says. Verses 8 and 9. John the Baptist. Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself. We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God. From from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. So every tree that does not bear good fruit. Is cut down and thrown into the fire. How many trees that don't bear fruit? All of them that don't continue to bear good fruit are cut down and thrown to the fire. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. John the Baptist doesn't work. Look what Jesus says here in verse 43 of Luke 6. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree that produces good fruit. For each each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now this is obvious. God When he invades a person's life, when he grants them illumination, when he saves them, causes them to be born again, made into a new creature, regenerated, they begin to change. And God perfects them until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, we're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about the pattern of someone's life. There should be a pattern in every believer's life where they get become more godly, sin less, obey more, produce more fruit. Turn over to Luke 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. Jesus tells the parable of the fig tree, which teaches the same lesson. True believers produce fruit, and if they don't, they're judged. And he says in verse 6, And he began telling them this parable. A man had a fig tree, which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, and he did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit On this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And and he answered and said to him. Well let it alone sir. For this year too. Until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year fine. But if not I'll cut it down. 
On which, yeah, we're going we're gonna to give it the benefit of the doubt, but, you know, after four years, there's no fruit there. It's, <laughs> it's a bad tree. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, tells the parable of the vine and the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. He goes on to say those branches are gathered together and they're pitched into the fire that don't bear fruit. In verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Notice when God saves somebody, he appoints them to bear fruit, fruit that remains. If that isn't good enough, you can look at Romans 7, 4, and 5, or 15, 28, or Galatians 5, 22, or Ephesians 5, 9, or Philippians 1, 11, or Colossians 1, 6, or Hebrews 12, 11, or James 3, 17 through 18, or June 12, all use fruit figuratively to describe good works in the lives of believers. So what does this tell us? It tells us this, that when someone is saved, they necessarily produce good fruit. Maybe not a lot at first, maybe very slowly, but they do. They do. And if there is no fruit, if there's no good works, if they don't, if it doesn't remain, it tells us that they don't know Christ because God's word isn't lying to us. He's telling us the truth. And so if you look at your life right now and you realize I'm not producing any fruit, I mean, I come to church, but I'm not producing any fruit. I don't love the Lord. I don't read my Bible. I can't remember the last time I actually got my Bible out and had a quiet time. No fruit. I don't serve in a ministry. No fruit. I don't love the Lord. No fruit. You need to give your life to Christ. You need to repent and believe. That's why Jesus came. He came to die for people who are fruitless, to make them fruit bearers for him and his glory. You know, you don't have to go out or here, get all psyched up and try and be really good so God will accept you. He'll accept you right now in your rebellion. He'll accept you as a sinner. He came to justify the ungodly. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. He'll accept you. Wretched, unclean, a sinner. And he will wash you, he will cleanse you, he will make you into his child, he will transform you, he will open your heart, he will give you his spirit, and he will perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. If you are willing to return, turn from your sins, and to turn to Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior, believing and trusting in what he did alone on the cross to save you. And for the rest of you who know the Lord, I would encourage you, Keep sowing seed. Keep sowing seed. God will use it. It will sprout and will bear forth fruit as God wills in the heart of those he wills. And it will bring forth a crop. Pray hard, share the gospel, and trust God for the results. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. What a great passage it is. Just to learn about why some people come to the Lord And some people don't, though both hear the same message. We know it's an act of your sovereign grace to grant people illumination. And yet you have called us to be part of the salvation process and that we are sowers of seed. I'm afraid, Father, that many of us have large sacks of seed and it's sowed shut. 
Father, I pray that all of us would be bold and courageous and with our deeds and with our words that we would proclaim your truth to a lost world that they might know you, be saved and produce fruit for your glory. We thank you for saving those you have. Open the hearts of those who don't know you. And Father, bring in a great harvest. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.